is from the book of Job, chapter 1 and 2. In case you don't have a Bible or would like to borrow one from the back table, there are some Bibles over there. And Job you can find on page 496, 496. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a, put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burnt up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older, oldest brother's house. And suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, <coughs> the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand to strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, <clears throat> he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Then Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Sova the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm a little bit nervous standing up here this morning. Are you? <laughs> but wasn't it great to see the music team uh, accompany us in singing, you know? Sing their hearts out and lead us in song. Wasn't that great? I just appreciated that this morning. It was good to see that. <clears throat> Thanks, Trudy, for reading two chapters. It's a, it's a fair bit in there. Did you notice in verse 4 of chapter 1, <clears throat> something that, strike, that struck me? And that was <clears throat> uh, chapter 1, verse 4, about his sons celebrating birthdays. In the other translations, it talks about the sons came regularly to celebrate their birthdays. Now, that happens three times, or it's recorded three times in the scriptures, the celebration of a birthday. The first one is Pharaoh, when he reinstates the butler and he kills the baker. You remember that story? And he impales him. That's on his birthday. The other one is King Herod, 
King Herod celebrates his birthday. You know what happens? He beheads John the Baptist. And here they are celebrating a birthday at the oldest son. And look at the tragedy. Now, what am I saying by that? (laughs) Careful how you celebrate your birthdays. (laughs) Okay, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for um, your word and the authority that it is in our lives that we can openly have it read to us and that we can appreciate what you have written down for our instruction. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you'll speak to us this morning through this passage of Job, that we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy. So, Lord, bless our time together and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in 1992, the Queen, in her annual review of the year, described it this way. It's a year that I don't look on fondly with undiluted pleasure. Remember that? She said that. It is an anus horribilis. That's how she described it. That year, part of Windsor Castle had burnt down and her children, her children's marriages were falling apart. And so she described it as an anus horribilis, a horrible year. Now, Job could very well have written that down in that passage after he suffered. True, isn't it? Of all the things that had befallen him, the loss of his children and his farm and everything else that he had, it could very well be written as an anus horribilis. But what does he say? Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from the mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. These are the words of Job, after all, that he had encountered. What a story. And what are two chapters, really? But in the book of Job, God does not try to justify himself as to what happened to Job. He doesn't try to explain all the tragedies that Job experienced, because I don't think he could do that in order for us to understand that well. He doesn't try to... um, say to us that you know these are the things that have happened and therefore we should appreciate that and understand that and move on. He doesn't say that at all. Nowhere do you read that in the book of Job. The book of Job is not a story about a man who was brave because Job wasn't. But what the Lord would teach us 
not only in these two chapters that we had read to us this morning, but in the rest of the book, that he is God. That he is sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside his domain. That's the lesson I hope we will learn this morning, that we will be reminded that there is no power on earth that can separate us from his love. It doesn't mean that we live lives without challenges or struggles or even tragedies, because the next year or the time ahead could very well be for us an annus horribilis. We live in this incredibly broken world. And as we can read in this book and these two chapters, Satan, the evil one, does his best to distract us from living a life a purposeful life to the glory of God. And even in Job's case, the Lord said you can take everything, but you can't take his life. But Job was left with two things, his life and his wife. Who says in verse 9 of chapter 2, commit suicide. Friends, that's how the evil one works. He made life very unbearable for Job. And how the devil, the evil one, can so easily infiltrate the minds of people and present a distortion of the truth as to what actually is going on. And I think if you think through and reflect on your own life, you could agree with that. Even as church, perhaps. The challenges we face. And the question is, how do we deal with that? How do we keep a perspective on what's going on? But as we can see later, we can be encouraged that despite the problems in Job's life, the Lord ultimately triumphs. You see, the book of Job is not about Job. It's about the Lord God, about his love, about his grace and his mercy. And as Job is told through the messengers of all the tragedies that have happened to his children and his farm and everything else, He still professes his faith in chapter 2 of his love for his God. But as you read through the rest of the book, from chapter 3 to 31, things change. So much so that there is hardly a profession of his love for the God, for his God. But our attention this morning is not going to be on the, on the things that 
we experience in life, all the hardships and the tragedies and everything else that comes, as real as they are, but how do we respond to them? Because pride, my friends, is very much used by Satan to distract us from the truth. Even with Job, you can read that in chapter 32. We are told he becomes righteous in his own eyes. Pride. In chapters 3 to 31, um, Job's in discussions with his three friends, and they're mentioned there at the end of chapter 2. And their discussions focus on Job's tragedies, really. And, and they draw a consensus that Job must have done something in order to have experienced all that he did. But Job is dissatisfied with that. He dis, he's dissatisfied with their explanations. And yet he laments the fact that God does not explain to him why all this has happened. And then, then a fourth person is introduced in chapter 32, and his name is Elihu. Elihu, we are told, is a young man, and he kept silent through the discussions of Job and his three friends. But he came increasingly frustrated on what he was hearing, how the discussion had developed. After all, human logic has its limitations. And so in the next six chapters, from 32 to 38, Elihu puts God right back in the forefront of discussion with the desired effect. And his words are confirmed by the Lord himself in chapter 38, resulting that Job finally acknowledges the far superior counsel of God and he repents. So what can we learn from all this? Well, the first thing I think we need to think through <clears throat> is that tragedy often comes as a result of an unseen conflict in the spiritual world. One of the most striking and even frustrating things about Job's story is that we know something of his experience which he does not know himself. There's something very real going on which Job and his friends are completely ignorant of. We find Satan standing before God, boasting of his success in the world. And God responds by pointing out to Job about Job's faithfulness and his godliness. And Satan responds to that with an insulting and accusing challenge. He only serves you by what he gets out of you. Sure, he's faithful. Why wouldn't he be? Look at all that you've given him. Take it away and he'll curse you to your face. And so to prove Satan wrong, God takes up Satan's bet, if you like. He said, okay, I'll give you permission to afflict Job in any way you choose but you can't touch him. And it's this 
that causes all Job's troubles. And this is the point I want to make, that tragedy often comes from an unseen conflict in the spiritual world. And the scriptures are consistent in saying this. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 4 about deceiving spirits taught by demons. And he says later on in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he says that our salvation is for the purpose of displaying God's glory to the rulers and the authorities in the spiritual world. And the Lord Jesus confirmed that, didn't he? He says that God's plan of salvation and how it's manifested arouses great interests, a great interest by the angels. Friends, there's a spiritual battle going on. And it's between God and Satan. And God said that, didn't he? That it would happen. Back in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Remember that? And so Satan is on a rampage. He's furious against God and all who belong to him. He's in mad rebellion against God. And unable to touch God himself, he goes after those who serve him. He also goes after those who are yet to know God and distract them as best as he can from coming to salvation. But as Christians, those who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, we've become children of God, haven't we? And Satan realises that he can't take that away from us. But my word, he does his best to steal the joy, doesn't he? The joy, how easily it goes when confronted with the brokenness of this world. And this is what Job and his three friends are completely unaware of. There's a battle raging on, friends. It's over the souls of people. We need to be aware of it. And Job's ignorance of all that is reflected in chapter 6, where he cries out in frustration, if it's not God who's doing this to me, then who is it? And I feel like shouting out to him. It's the evil one. And so at this point, we know more about Job's situation than he does himself. But the question is, for Job, and it's the common question, why? For Job's friends, it was supposedly found in Job's sinfulness 
He had done something wrong to deserve all this. But Job couldn't reconcile that. He did not know of the sin that would cause all this. We are told he didn't sin in all this. He thought it might rather be in God's injustice that God was being unfair to him. But they were both wrong, weren't they? It wasn't about what Job had done and it wasn't about God's injustice. We are told Job was not suffering because he had sinned but because he hadn't. That was the reason. He hadn't sinned. It had never simply occurred to him that Satan had instigated the whole thing. He had wrongly accused Job before God. He doesn't really love you. He's only in it for the money. And now Job was suffering for all that. But little did he know that he was suffering for God's honour. That's the point, isn't it? If we are faithful to our Lord, expect to suffer from it. We are told that Christians will be persecuted for their faith. We know that it happens. We know that as Christians, we'll be challenged in our faith to a point where we have to make strong decisions. Friends, temptation is round the corner. Sin is crouching at the door. We must master it. And so we can learn from Job that it is because of his faithfulness that he had drawn enemy fire. And it may very well be that Satan is doing that in your life right now. And we don't like it. Friends, if that's the case, you have been put on display. So God and his counsel would allow that to happen so that his work in us would be shown to be real. So that we become the means of glorifying God. That we become victorious over sin And when we think that through, we realise that these things happen for a good purpose. For it serves a high and wonderful purpose. No wonder James writes in chapter 1, and I always struggled with this passage, you know, count it all joy when you were confronted with trials and tribulations. Who wants to, who wants to go through it? But that's what James writes, count it all joy. 
that you're being tested. God's honour is at stake, friends. And Paul writes to Timothy, anyone, every, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's what he writes. And Job was experiencing that. And maybe you are too. Friends, that's the theology. That's the theory, if you like. And we can agree with it. But the question is, is it really translating into our lives? You might be sick of hearing that. But I think it's a question that needs to be asked. And I think we need to be reminded of why these things happen in the sense of that they do happen for a purpose. So how prepared and equipped are we in order to deal with it? How do we keep a perspective on all this? God's honour is at stake. Another thing we can learn about Job's experience is the inadequacy of human reasoning. Job's friends were determined that it was because of his sin that he had encountered all this. And, and if you get a chance, read chapters 3 to 31. It's, I know it's hard slog, but my word, you get an appreciation of what they are really trying to say to Job. And yet Job confronts them all the time. No, it's not because of my sin. I can't understand that. I, don't, I have not experienced that. And he defends his position all the time. And yet Job thought that God was dealing with, with him unfairly. It didn't make sense to him what he had done to deserve all this. But Job did not know what we know. That Satan had instigated all this. But he knew one thing, that his friends were all windbags. And that's reflected in chapter 16 when he describes them as miserable comforters. You've got nothing to say. Their counsel was unable to satisfy him in any way, not give him any comfort. They knew nothing of his situation. But the problem was, neither did he. He had no adequate answer, no explanation, nothing. And I think sometimes we're the same, aren't we? All through the book of Job, you see him searching for answers. And so desperate is he on that quest that finally, in frustration, he laments life. 
and suggests that God is unfairly punishing him. But that's always the problem, isn't it? That's always the greatest test. If only we knew why. If only we could see God's plan from beginning to end. Then our suffering would be more bearable. And what often gets us down as we lay awake at night, our own reasonings are so inadequate. Somehow we feel if God would explain to us, then we would cope better. Then we would move on and persevere better. That's what we think, don't we? God never explained to Job. And he wouldn't explain to us what he does. He simply calls us to trust him. Late in the book, God finally speaks. And he responds to Job's challenge. But it's not the response that Job had anticipated. Rather than explaining to Job while he was suffering, God says, who are you that darkens my counsel? Who are you? And his reasoning behind it is not what Job expected. Job, did you create the world? Are you in control of it? Are you making sure that it rains? Are you looking after nature, Job, really? Are you questioning me, Job? There is no part of the universe outside my authority. Do I really owe you an explanation? Job, why are you justifying yourself? It's rather humbling, isn't it? To hear that. Or do you feel God owes you an explanation? See, friends... It gives God no honour to trust him only when you fully understand what's going on. That's not faith. That's fact. It only honours him when we completely trust him in every circumstance of our lives. God won't give us the details but he's given us more than enough information, hasn't he, of who he is. Of what he's done. And how he's saved us. Is he not the one who gave up his only son? Can we not find in him good reason 
to trust him, even if we don't understand his ways? Our own reasonings are so inadequate, but we have something better. Don't we? Jesus Christ. Who took upon himself the suffering of this world. That we died, that we might live. Conquered victory. Victorious over Satan and death. That's what he accomplished, didn't he? You see, God is sovereign and supreme over everything. And the book of Job won't, like I said, explain to us all the methods of God and his rule over creation. But did you notice at the beginning that Satan had to get permission? That he had to report in and that he had to get permission again to do more. Did you notice that? See, God's got control of him. He's put limits on him. He's got him on a leash like a dog. You know what I mean? Come back. It's good to know. It's good to know that he'll never give us more than what we can bear. That God is never absent. And has a deep interest in our lives. A deep interest. Friends, not a hair falls from your head without him knowing it. I marvel at that. <laughs> but the test is whether you believe that in your worst moments. Does God still love? Is he still interested? Friends, can you say in your worst moment, I know that there is a God who loves me so much that he sent his only son to die in my place, who is my father, this great, good, wonderful father, who is in firm control of this problem that I've got. I don't know what he's up to, but I know him. I know that he loves me, and I know that he's good. Too good to do me wrong. Too wise to make a mistake. Now, if we don't focus on that truth, we'll lose the plot, won't we? We'll become miserable and lonely and feel sorry for ourselves. That's what we do, don't we? If we don't understand what's going on, we hide. I've done it myself. No one knows. No one cares. not the way but knowing that he does he has a deep interest is there anything we cannot face in the time ahead whatever it is sure we'll have our moments and we'll muck it up but is it too much for us to look up heavenward with a believing heart and say, God, 
Lord, I have no explanation for what's happening in my life. But I bow before you and accept from your hand whatever you give. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Remember Abraham? Chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham's sort of in a similar situation. God had promised him that he would be the father of a great nation. And Abraham says, but I've got no children. And Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything. So what does God do? He scruffs Abraham by the neck and drags him out of the tent and says, have a look at the stars. Count them. You going to trust me? You know what's said then? And Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe, friends. Believe this God who's in firm control of every aspect of your life and may it be credited to you as righteousness. Let's wind up. I think we, we need to read this book of Job wearing New Testament glasses. See, Job never lost his desire for God. He may have justified himself and lamented that God was dealing with him unjustly. But in chapter 31, he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. Someone to put perspective in my life. That's who we have, don't we? And this is where we find ourselves really giant steps ahead of Job. Job searched for a mediator, someone that would stand up for him, mediate for him before God. We have that mediator, friends, and he's dealt with our rot and our sin and our hopelessness. Job wanted someone not only to plead his case, but to restore him. So Jesus did. And here there's a world of difference, isn't it, between Job and his situation and his circumstances at that time and what we have with the revelation of the scriptures. Friends, because of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. And he has instructed us that we should come to him with everything that troubles us in life, everything that confronts us in life, the highs and the lows. And we won't only find him sympathetic, but 
full of grace, mercy and compassion for our every need. So then, there are reasons for the things that we go through in life that we won't understand. But there's a God who we do know, whose rule is unchangeably firm in all circumstances in life, whose character is unchangeably just, and whose heart is unchangeably good and gracious and loving. And through Jesus Christ, we can know him. And knowing him, we can trust him with everything. For me, that's a great relief. Is that a relief to you? To confess to God our inability to put it all together. And to stand alongside our brother Job and humbly confess that I've mucked it up. And rather, place our trust in the one who's secured our future. Friends, that's the gospel. That's a great gospel. And I trust that you'll persevere in your walk with the Lord, reflecting that in all that you do. So let's stand next to Job and give God the glory for all that he's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,